That sounds so good. Let's do it one more time. You made all things new. Think about those old things. Let us pray. Father, this morning, as we consider the old things of our life, we're we're just rocked at the fact that you're able to make those old, dead areas alive. And Father, I pray that today that you would remind us that this is not a work that we can do on our own. But this is only a work that can be done through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross of Jesus Christ. We thank you for the ability to be able to look back at old things and use them as a launch pad, which is a a platform for a testimony. Father, I pray, oh God, that you would cover us, that you would, in many ways, use our, our old as a way to to bring someone that that doesn't know you, that may be far from you, that may be in the midst of the same thing that we're saying you've brought us forward, pray that you would help us to remember and to be sensitive and, and also have passion and empathy as we're dealing with others. It's in Christ's name that we give all glory. Amen. Good morning, Epiphany. How are we doing today? Let's try that one more time. How are we doing today, Epiphany? Good. It is so good to be here. Delighted to be honored and to, delighted and honored to be gathered around the throne of our Lord and Savior and our King Jesus Christ. This morning, as I was sitting there and worshiping with you all today, you know, I was reminded the importance of corporate worship uh, because, in many ways, corporate worship really is a reminder to us of our need to be taught the word of God, our need to be engaged by the Holy Spirit through corporate worship. Yes, you can have devotion on your own and you can go off your own intuition if you want to. Uh, But the way this thing was set up, particularly in the New Testament, it was set up that they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and corporate worship reminds us of that need of us being engaged through the word of God. Please make no mistake about it. This moment that we are entering into of opening up the word of God. We can, we can do this every week, and then after a while, it just becomes ritualistic. It becomes just a part of our week. It's a part of what we do. Or we can engage this moment as Paul engaged it in Romans chapter 16, verse 25, when he says, Now unto him who is able to strengthen you by my gospel. And then he said, And the preaching of Jesus Christ. Please understand that the, this moment of... Engaging the word is a huge part of your spiritual formation. Yes, you can podcast these days um, and, and you can be isolated from the body of Christ, but it's nothing like gathering together. Uh, let me also take this moment to publicly say thank you and welcome to those of you who are first time visitors. It seems like we had a few first time visitors today and we are grateful that you were here and we'd love to hear your story, hear a little bit about you. So if you don't have to rush out, if you could hang out a little bit and talk with us, that would be a real joy for us today. Uh, Today begins our three-week sermon series on discipleship, growing to look more like Jesus Christ. I don't know about y'all, but I'm excited. Um, I think many of us come into 
the thought of discipleship with our own worldviews. And instead of letting the text tell us what discipleship is, a lot of us go off of our experience. And so I'd like to talk about discipleship today, not just today, but next week and the following week. The, really, the rest of this month, we'll be talking about discipleship. And my hope is that we would birth in this church the need to be a, a part of discipleship and participate in discipleship uh, through one-on-one discipleship and through corporate discipleship as well, or group discipleship as well. So we'll do that for three weeks. And then after three weeks, we will jump back into a book of the Bible. When I say a book of the Bible, I'm talking about an entire book we will go through. Uh, Many of you have been a part of our church for a while, so you know that we're most comfortable dealing with books of the Bible. It's just the best way for us not to skip anything, not to um, try to add anything or try to play the Holy Spirit. But when you go through a book of the Bible, it doesn't give you wiggle room to do that. So we'll do 1 Peter starting the first Sunday in February. We'll do all five chapters. There's 105 verses, and I guarantee you we're going through every single verse. And there's a lot in there. And even as I was reading through 1 Peter this week, I was um, trying to see what the Lord was going to do. And the reality is I have no clue. I know there's good stuff in the book of 1 Peter. um, And so I'm excited to do that. We started our church by going through books of the Bible. We started our church by going through the book of Colossians. And uh, then we also jumped into the book, an Old Testament book, Jonah. And this month or next month, we'll jump into First Peter. So um, as preparation for that, I want you guys to, I mean, dial in, read First Peter. It's a short book, so you can read it in one sitting. And so I ask that you guys, before we actually jump into the series, take a good look at First Peter. But today we are in Second Timothy. So if you could grab your devices or your physical copies and meet me in Second Timothy as we talk about discipleship today, as you turn there, let me, um, let me do this. Let me give a definition, a working definition of what, def- uh, of what discipleship is. Discipleship, as you keep turning there, is a Christian. A Christian discipleship is the process by which disciples grow in the Lord Jesus Christ and are equipped by the Holy Spirit who resides in our hearts to overcome the pressures and the trials of this present life. And listen to this, and become more and more Christ-like. The one goal of discipleship is to conform you to the image of Christ. And that's the desire God has for every believer, that we would look more and more like his son. And the Lord uses the process of discipleship to get us to that place. But before we dive into the text, there's really three things, three myths, if you will, I like to take off of the table so that we're approaching the text with a clear conscience and not trying to add anything to it. The first thing that I think is important for you to know is that discipleship, the model of discipleship, it's more than one model of just one-on-one discipleship. So because when we what we think is discipleship is me sitting down over coffee with a super spiritual person and they're pouring their life into me. And that's a model. That's that's certainly a model. And I don't want to take that away from you if you're in that type of a relationship. But the prevalent model within the scriptures is not one on one discipleship, but it's group discipleship. If you saw the, the video that we put out this week. With the one that discipled me, my least close discipleship, my spiritual father, Dr. Mason, if you saw that video, that's one of the things we talked about is how the prevalent model of discipleship within the scriptures was group discipleship. In fact, I mean, right now, corporately, we are gathered together and you're being discipled through the scriptures right now. 
So what discipleship isn't, let's grab coffee. Discipleship isn't only let me come over your house. But discipleship can be in a group setting. In fact, I would say it's the prevalent model. Jesus never did one-on-one discipleship. There's not one person that Jesus said, I'm going to pour everything into this one person. But Jesus had 120, right? And then he had a more intimate group of 12 that he poured his life into. One of them was a little, we know what happened with one of them. But 12, Jesus poured into and 11 of them caught it. One of them didn't. And, uh, and then three. Jesus went down and got more intimate with three. No one can argue that Peter, James, and John saw more. They witnessed more miracles than any other disciples. And so even down to his shortest group of disciple, disciple group, it was three. It was never just one-on-one discipleship. And with group discipleship, you get more. You can replicate more. You can send more out to disciple others opposed to doing it one-on-one. So I, I don't want to say, hey, listen, one-on-one discipleship is unbiblical. You can't say that. But at the same time, I'll say it's not the prevalent model, but it is one way that the Lord does use. Before we get in the text, I want to take this one off the table as well. The person that is discipling you, discipling you is not some super spiritual person that has no sin. Hear me, the person discipling you, if you are in a one-on-one discipleship process or relationship, that person that is discipling you, unless it's Jesus Christ himself, has sin. And it's often worked out through the process of discipleship. And so do not think I'm going to a person that has no sin, because what you will find is that through time and through developing a relationship, you'll see that there is sin. So I want to take that one off the table. And the last one is everything disciples us. Like, let's be honest. Music disciples you. TV shows disciple you. Culture disciples you. Like, I got to be careful. I love Kendrick Lamar. I'm just, you know, I'm just putting it out there to you right now. And I got to be careful how much Kendrick Lamar I listen to because after a while, he'll start discipling me. <laughs> I'm just saying, like, I'm, well, like, I'm riding the car, supposed to be trusting Jesus. I'm, I'm rocking. We going to be all right. You know, I'm, I'm just saying, Kendrick, like, everything disciples us. And so, which is why we have to be careful with what we listen to and what we allow in. But in our text this morning, Paul is going to give us some biblical discipleship nuggets, if you will, that I think will, will serve us well today as we start the, the process and the discussion of discipleship. Second Timothy is where you can meet me in chapter one. It's the second letter that Paul wrote to someone that he discipled, which was Timothy, not the only person he discipled, but one of the people he discipled. Verse number one says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to my beloved child, to to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Verse three, I thank God who I serve, as did my ancestors with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. Underline this phrase in verse number four, As I remember your tears, that is going to become very important to the process of discipleship as we talk about it. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you. Verse 6, our last verse. For this reason, I remind you, to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. I want to preach today uh, briefly from the topic entitled Discipleship Nuggets. 
Discipleship Nuggets. Let's pray. Lord, we are coming to you as we do every single week, pleading for the Holy Spirit to move. Um, I, I think I say it quite frequently that I cannot preach without the Holy Spirit. And, and I'll go so far as to say, none of us can receive without the Holy Spirit. And so, Father, we do need you to move and hover upon us as you hovered upon the water in Genesis 1. Pray that you would breathe on us today as we talk about such an important topic as discipleship. Pray that Christ is glorified and that he is proclaimed even through this sermon series on discipleship. It's in Christ's name we give all glory and his name alone. Amen. Discipleship nuggets is what we're going to talk about today. I'm told of a fictitious story. Let me say this again. It's a fictitious story that I'm told of of a man who was born with a awful facial disformity. And he grew up isolated and he grew up lonely and he grew up in a small town. And when he was growing up, he was sure that when he got old enough, he would move away out of that town to start fresh and start new. And when he reached adult, adulthood, he finally got up enough strength to move away. And as he's moving away, he goes to another town. And on his way to that town, he finds a mask. Now he takes this mask and he puts it on his face, on his in his, on his disformed face, he puts it on it. And the goal that he was trying to reach was that no one would be able to know who he was. The mask was uncomfortable, but he was sure that no one would be able to find out that he had a disformed face if he put this mask on. And so he put it on and literally wore it every single day. He gets to a new town and no one was able to discover that he had this disformity because he wore it every day. He made all of these new friends, and even got, fell in love and, and, and proposed to a young lady and had himself a fiance. She didn't know about his face because he wore this mask so much. Well, an old lady from his old town came to the new town and discovered who he was. And in front of all of his friends and even his fiance, she forced him to remove his mask. And as he removed his mask, it was a surprise to him and the old lady that his face was handsome. It was no longer disformed. Every single day of wearing this mask, his face began to mold into the mask. And so when he took it off, his face looked handsome just like that mask was. And in a greater, in a deeper, in a higher way, that is what discipleship is. It takes the disformity of our lives and it acts as, as though it's a mask over our disformity and it forms us to look more and more like Jesus. I told you when we first started that the one goal of discipleship is to get us to look like the image of Christ. And so consider that that mask that this disformed man found acts as a, acts as a discipleship model that should be in your life that helps you to look more like Jesus. And Paul today in our text, he's going to write a letter to Timothy not only just somebody that he randomly knows, but this is somebody that he discipled. This is somebody he loved. This is somebody that the text calls him my child or my son. And so this is somebody that Paul was serious about. Now, just to keep in context, Second Timothy is a prison epistle. Paul wrote this while he was in a cold jail cell in Rome. In fact, the jail cell was like a dungeon. It wasn't even a door to get in. If you look at these Roman jail cells, it was a hole in the roof that they would lower him in. And that is the only place that he got light. And that is the only place that he even got air. And so Paul, many people say that this is Paul's last words. Now consider what you would do with your last words. 
If you knew that you were on death row, because Paul wasn't just in prison, he was in prison awaiting his death. And in the midst of being in prison, I would think, I would say some of my most profound words in those moments, but Paul spends those moments not even thinking about himself, not even defending himself. Paul spends those last moments pouring again back into the, his son in ministry or the one that he is discipling. And that is what, where we find ourselves in the text. If you could consider with me verse number one. Verse number one says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. Let's lift up the first part of that. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. It's interesting that Paul starts this letter to his, his son Timothy, or the one that he's discipling, by pulling rank. He doesn't have to start this letter by announcing that he's apostle of Christ. Timothy knows that he's apostle of Christ. In fact, if you read 1 Timothy, he starts the letter by saying, I'm an apostle. So he doesn't have to do that in the second letter. But Paul deems it necessary to write this intimate letter. If you read all of 2 Timothy, and if you read all of 1 Timothy, this week I sat three times over and over again, back to back and read 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy. And what I found out in doing that is that 2 Timothy, along with 1 Timothy, is a very intimate letter. It's an intimate letter. Paul loved Timothy. In fact, Paul didn't, when he discipled him, he just didn't disciple him in theology and doctrine. But if you read places like 1 Timothy 5.23, where he says, no longer drink the water, but use a little wine for your stomach and for your ailments. In other words, Paul wrote Timothy in 1 Timothy and said, listen, the water has bacteria in it and it's bothering your stomach. Stop drinking the water and drink a little bit of wine. I have no time. My sinful self wants to joke around that discipleship involves wine, but I, I'll leave it alone today. Uh, but what you'll see is that Paul was concerned about the health of Timothy. It was deeper than just theology. He said, listen, stop drinking the water. It's an intimate, intimate letter. In fact, if you, we're not going to go over it today, but if you keep reading the next verses after uh, after verse number six, you'll see that Paul is like, listen, Timothy, come quickly to me. Look at the fourth chapter of first Timothy. He says, come, come quickly, bring, bring the sacred writings, bring the parchments, bring my cloak that I left in Troas. What he is desiring, he's desiring to spend time with Timothy. Now, this is important because if you think about the fact that Paul and Timothy had an intimate relationship why does our boy Paul decide that it's necessary in the first verse to open up by pulling rank? He opens up and says, listen, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. Despite the fact that he knew that Timothy would have known he was an apostle, he decides to open up and say that what he's doing is he's motivating Timothy by, by showing him the authority that he has over Timothy's life. It's very important because what he's saying is what I'm telling you through discipleship is not a good idea. What I'm telling you through discipleship isn't the better of a few options. What I'm telling you through discipleship is birth through the Holy Spirit. I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ is what Paul is saying. Think of this. When you're in a discipleship relationship, the motivation is never intimacy and friendship. The motivation is authority. You're building off of authority. 
And, and let me tell you why that is. I'm talking one-on-one relationship or group relationship. The one that is the disciple maker should have a spiritual authority over your life. The reason I say that is think of your own, think of parenting. What if I try to parent my kids purely based on intimacy and friendship and not authority? They'll run all, I know my boys. They'll run all over me, but the relationship works well. I'm able to disciple them. I'm able to pour into them because the relationship, the foundation of it is authority. Paul is saying, listen, I am a apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, I, I've realized this. this is, we have a bunch of millennials in this room. I realize my generation, we have issues with authority. Spiritual authority, we, we have major issues. Like, we'll, we agree with the doctor's opinion, the therapist counsel, our, our friendship suggestions. We'll take all of those, but the one that's over us in discipleship, we'll say, who she thinks she talking to? The, one, the, the spiritual, the, the pastor that the Lord puts over your life to disciple in this setting, setting we'll say, why, he, he can't be in my business. But yet we'll go to the doctor with an ailment and believe whatever they say and they don't even know you. Yet in a discipleship relationship where your sin is coming up and it's being shown and the Lord is exposing it and you're being vulnerable, the one that is discipling you, you'll push back. Paul says, no, Timothy, you're not going to do that. You know why? Because I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. There's a couple of nutrients that we can pull out of the first verse knowing that Paul is pulling rank here. The first is the one discipling you must be somebody that has a spiritual walk with the Lord. Notice I didn't say somebody that's been a believer for a long time because you can be a believer for a long time and still be spiritually immature. But Paul is not, Paul is saying, listen, I'm an, I'm an apostle. I'm pulling authority. The person that you are submitting your life to, because really what you're doing is you're giving them a, a spiritual influence over your life. And the person that you are submitting to when it comes to discipleship, whether individual discipleship or group discipleship, the person that the Lord raises up over your life, you should respect the authority that that person has over you. And even if they're telling you something that you disagree with, you should submit to that. That's the second nutrient we can pull from this. Even though Paul is pulling rank here, Timothy doesn't write a letter back and say, no, I'm not doing that. But Timothy submits himself. Hear this. And Timothy's an elder at the Ephesus church. So it's not like Timothy doesn't have his own spiritual authority. Timothy certainly could pull rank and say, hello, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ as well. But he does not do that. Doesn't matter how spiritually mature you think you are. All of us in this place need to be what I would call teachable. Discipleship doesn't work if you're unteachable. It does not work if you think you know everything. And I can tell you now, I personally don't have time for, unte for discipling unteachable men. Men that don't show up on time. Men that question everything you tell them to do. And then they walk out and don't produce fruit. Paul is like, no, I, I don't have time. Because what Paul needs him to do, Paul needs Timothy to accept what he's saying based on the authority of his apostleship. Because he wants Timothy to go to Ephesus and replicate. Make more disciples that make more disciples that make more disciples. Listen, discipleship making it isn't something that you can pick and choose if you want to do it. Even Jesus in Matthew 28 says, go and make disciples. And so it's an important factor. Be humble, submit, 
Paul says, I'm an apostle. And, and Timothy does not push back on his apostleship. And then he doesn't even just say, I'm an apostle. He affirms the rank that he has, the spiritual authority he has by saying this. Verse number one, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. So in other words, I didn't make myself an apostle. I didn't get voted in as an apostle. I am apostle and apostle by the will of God. Again, he's reaffirming his position. And so please understand at the foundation, the basic level of discipleship, you cannot understand discipleship without understanding spiritual authority. And if that's you in here, that's discipling somebody, you need to understand the authority that you have over their life. And be careful with that, with that so that you're not making disciples that look like you instead of looking like Jesus. But we need disciples that mimic. That's why, that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, he says, be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. If he, it would have been arrogant if he said, be an imitator of me. But he says, as I imitate Christ. Let's keep going. Verse number two. Let me read verse number one in concert with verse number two. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child, look at this. Grace, mercy, and peace from God, the Father, and Jesus Christ, our Lord. I love the first Timothy because it says Jesus Christ, our hope. And anyway, anyway, he says it here. He says grace, mercy, and peace. I was watching earlier this week the... Uh, the current president's farewell speech that he did in Chicago. And in his farewell speech, he said a word that I heard before, but I wasn't quite sure of what it meant. And I know y'all are smart and y'all understood everything the president said, but there was a word he said in there. My, all my two kids are sitting there. My wife is sitting there. When he said it, I was like, man, that's a, that's a good word. Let me look that one up. So I looked it up and I read it to the family. But this is what he said. He said, I know our work has not only helped so many Americans. This is what the president said. Not Paul. Authoritative, not authoritative. It has, been, it, is, it has inspired so many Americans, especially young, many young people out there, to believe that you can make a difference, to hitch your wagon to something bigger than yourself. Listen, here it is. This is the word he says. This generation coming up is unselfish, creative, patriotic, and then he said altruistic. Now, I know y'all are like, I, you didn't know that one? I did not know what that one meant. And so I said, well, let me look up what altruism means. And when I looked it up, it says it's an unselfish concern and devotion for the welfare of others. Altruism is more concerned about somebody else's welfare than your own. When I read this verse, I'm not sure why the Lord brought that word back into my mind. Besides the fact that verse number two shows us what altruism is. The reason it shows us is because... Paul is, I told you at the beginning of this sermon that Paul is in prison. Now, Paul should be, he should be, he should be pronouncing grace, mercy, and peace over his own life. But Paul isn't announcing anything over his own life. He thinks about his, he thinks about the one he's discipling, not even himself. And when he thinks about him, he pronounces grace. And he pronounces mercy and he pronounces peace over him. Listen, if you're going to disciple somebody or a group of people, and you're not more concerned about their spiritual growth than your own, you shouldn't disciple. Become a life coach. Become a therapist. Do something else great. Do some great Facebook posts and some tweet. But listen, do not, if you're going to disciple somebody, you have to be more concerned about their spiritual growth than even your own. 
Paul looks and says grace. He says mercy. And he says peace. Listen, the, the one goal I have with discipling my two sons and discipling some other men, the one goal I have in all of them is that they would be more spiritually disciplined than myself that they would pray more fervently and more passionate, that they would walk in better obedience, that they would sit before you and unpack the scriptures way greater than I can. That is the one goal I have in discipleship, that I want to see you become more than I am. And all of us, if we go into discipleship with that thinking that I'm more concerned about their spiritual growth than my own. Now, I'm not saying don't be concerned about yours. Be concerned about yours, but if you're concerned about yours, only don't disciple. But if you're going to disciple, you need to be able to do like Paul. Sit in a cold jail cell knowing you're about to die, but yet you're thinking about your son in ministry or your daughter in ministry, and you're saying grace, mercy, and peace. And Paul realizes when he pronounces this, he realizes that it's going to take real discipleship, pours and invests into somebody else, but realizes it's only God that can make this thing happen. Spiritual growth can only happen by God. That is why he says in verse number two, grace, mercy, and peace from God. He does not say grace, mercy, and peace comes from the good information I gave you, but grace, mercy, and peace from God. Just walking straight through the text. And do you desire in this room that people would be more spiritually mature than you? Do you desire that for somebody that you're walking with or a group of people that you're walking with? Do you desire their spiritual walk to be so intact that it's greater than even yours? No, we normally desire it for ourselves. In fact, we'll desire it so much that we'll pray for it for ourselves, but won't pray for it for somebody else. Paul doesn't do that. You know how I know? Verse number three says, is Paul saying, I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience, as I remember you consistently in my prayers night and day. He says, I thank God, and he skips a little bit. If you skip a little bit, he says, I thank God as I remember you. I thank God when I remember, when I think about Timothy, it causes me to pray for Timothy. But he doesn't just say, I thank God. He launches off into this, this title, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors with a clear Conscious, do you pray for the one that you're discipling or the group of people that you are discipling? And Paul often, Paul, Paul does one thing. Paul always invests into people and then he prays for the person he's investing into. This is not the only place that we see Paul pouring in and then praying. We see it in Romans chapter one, verse nine and 10. If you're taking notes, take these verses down. Romans one, nine and 10 says, for God is what Paul wrote. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayer. Philippians chapter one, verse three and four. I thank God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, making prayer with joy. Colossians chapter one, verse number three. We always thank God. Notice the perpetual nature here as well. We always thank God the Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. 1 Thessalonians 1, 2, we give thanks to God always for you, consistently mentioning you in our prayers. Last one, 2 Thessalonians 1, uh, verse number 11, to this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and fulfill every resolve for good. Paul consistently prayed for the ones that he poured into and the ones that he invested in he prayed for them. 
Do you take your relationships with others so serious, especially through discipleship that you pray for? And don't just note the fact that Paul prays here. Notice the perpetual nature of his prayers. Look at what he says in verse number three. Verse number three says, I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience as I remember you. Look at this. Constantly in my prayers, night and day. That's it almost sounds redundant. He says it would have been more grammatically correct if Paul would have said, I consistently remember you in my prayers, period. Or if he said, I remember you in my prayers night and day, period. But Paul doesn't do that. Paul says, I consistently remember you in my prayers. And then he says, night and day. If he said consistently, it, we can assume that he prayed night and day. But Paul doesn't leave the assumption up to us. Paul's redundancy here is really showing us the emphasis of the perpetual nature of his prayer. He says, I always pray. I consistently pray. And I don't just consistently pray, but I want to pray for you night and day. When's the last time we spent time praying for somebody else night and day? Like consistently pray for somebody. We don't even pray for ourselves night and day, let alone somebody else. Paul is sitting in prison. I keep, I want to remind you of that because if anybody needs prayer at this moment, it's Paul. Paul is like, no, I'm going to spend my last alive moments in this jail cell praying for you, Timothy. And when I do that, I'm going to pray night and day Paul is showing us here that he devotes time and he devotes energy into praying into this discipleship relationship. We don't do that. What we do is what I call drive-by prayers. We pray real quick, especially if we pray for somebody else. We pray real quick if we pray for somebody else. Let's be honest. How many conversations do you get involved in? And somebody says, yeah, I'm going through this. I'm going through this. And you'll say, oh, I'm going to pray for that. You walk away. Don't even think about that conversation anymore. How about we stop at that moment and pray at that moment? Paul says, I pray for you consistently. Oh, by the way, night and day, I pray for you. He's, he's putting the emphasis on how much he prays for his young son in the ministry, his young son in the ministry, Timothy. You must pray for others. If you're not going to pray, if you're not, what we have to do is take our horizontal discipleship relationship and turn it into a vertical petition. You have to pray for somebody else. And if you're not willing to do that, again, sell insurance or, or sell houses, do something else. But don't disciple unless you're going to invest time in prayer. Because what prayer, what prayer really does is it unleashes the power of God. James 5 has a very interesting verse about prayer. And it says, the effectual fervent prayer of the righteous avails much. And so, yes, it births power into the one you're discipling, but it also serves as, a, as something that just builds confidence. Like, you know how confidence and, and confident and motivating it is for Timothy to know that somebody is not just praying for him, always praying for him. So don't just pray for the one that you are discipling. Pray for them, but tell them you're praying for them. Show them that you're praying for them. And that is what discipleship is. Let's keep going. Verse number four. He says, as I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I love the. I told you to underline this because this is powerful to me. As I remember your tears. And so Paul is saying, listen, I pray for you consistently and I pray for you night and day. 
But as I'm doing that, I remember your tears. Notice he's not saying, I remember how you exegeted the, the Old Testament. And he's not doing any of that. He's saying, I told you it's an intimate letter. I remember your tears. And we have to, in discipleship, have to get in close enough proximity that we see the tears of the people that we are engaging. You, in other words, you got to get your heart involved in discipleship. Now, keep in mind, this is Paul. This is Paul that has, we saw last week, that is planting churches in Ephesus. This is Paul that we saw spent three months in the synagogue in Ephesus and then two years in the hall of Tyrannus. When does Paul have time to be intimate, an intimate part of Timothy's life that he remembers his tears? Paul made time. He made time because when he's planting this church, remember, Timothy's an elder at Ephesus. And so as he's planting this church, what he is also doing at the same time is he's developing this intimate relationship with Paul. And that is so important. Discipleship is not just let's open up the text. That's a big piece of discipleship. But discipleship also is tell me your hurts. Tell me your pain. He remembers his tears. And Paul doesn't only remember the tears of Paul, of Timothy, but he would have remembered the tears of even all of those that he poured in in Ephesus. How do I know that? If you go to Acts chapter 20, as Paul is about to die and go to Jerusalem, as he's about to see them for the last time at least, he tells them that he's going to Jerusalem and he's going to die in Jerusalem. And what does the elders do as he's talking to the Ephesian elders? The Bible says in Acts chapter 20, verse 36 and 37, when Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down and prayed. And this is what verse 37 says. And they all wept and embraced him. And so it wasn't just Timothy that he remembered Timothy's tears, but he remembers all of those that he poured into through discipleship. One time when I was in Philly and uh, I, was, I was doing my residency, so I was working, doing a residency and being discipled by Dr. Mason. And there was one time that he was telling me about somebody that he was pouring into that did him wrong. And, I, and he was so hurt about it. And I was like, how do I, going into pastoral ministry, guard against that type of hurt? And his response, I'll never forget, his response was, you can't. Because if you're going to disciple and you're really going to care about people, when they do you wrong, it always hurts. And the moment that you stop hurting when people do you wrong is the moment that you stop caring for people. And so what Paul is doing is he's, he's showing us, listen, I remember your tears. In discipleship, you have to get deep enough that not only that you're in close proximity to remember their tears, but you have to get deep enough with somebody else that if they did you wrong, it hurts you every time. If you don't hurt, you do not care. And so listen, Epiphany, Epiphany, please hear me. As we're talking about discipleship, do not think of discipleship just as a hierarchy. I'm going to open up the text with you. No, I need to hear your hurts. I need to hear your pain. Let's keep going. Verse number four, as I remember your tears, I long to see you. I love this, that I may be filled with joy. Wait a second. I thought discipleship, Paul is saying here, I long to see you, Timothy, because seeing you whom I've discipled brings me joy. I thought discipleship was just somebody spiritual pouring into you. But Paul is showing us that discipleship is a mutual benefit. I get joy when I see you. 
And if the person that you're walking with, the young lady that you are discipling, the young group of men that you are discipling, if there is no longing to see them and a longing, a deep longing to be filled with joy, again, don't disciple. Because discipleship, again, not only gets your heart involved, but it brings you joy. So discipleship is not just let me pour into you and call out sin in your life. No, what I love about that video this week, if you saw it, if you haven't, you should go onto our social media and check it out. There's some really good content that Dr. Mason pulls out of discipleship. And one of the things he says in there is that the discipleship process often disciples the disciple maker. The process of discipleship should disciple you. If you are pouring into somebody, that person should be bringing you joy as well. Paul says, when I see you, remember at the end of this, he's like, come quickly, come before winter is what he says. In other words, come quickly because I desire to see you because when I see you, it fulfills my joy. Verse number five, I love this. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And now I am sure dwells in you. Let me lift up that first part. I'm reminded of your sincere faith. This is the third time that we see Paul talks about remembering. He said it in verse number three. He said, I remember, um, he, he said, I remember Timothy constantly in my prayers night and day. Verse number four, he said, I remember your tears. Now he talks about remembering again. He says, I am reminded of your sincere faith. Paul is building on this theme of retrospect. It's probably because he's sitting in a cold jail cell, but he's just simply thinking about Paul and his past times with Paul and when he, when he, when his past times with Timothy. And when he thinks about Timothy, he thinks about his sincere faith. He thinks about the salvific work of Jesus Christ in Timothy's life. And the, the center of discipleship should be the gospel. That's what Paul is saying here. I remember your sincere faith. What brought you to faith? I'm thinking about that. I'm thinking about the very gospel that saved you and the gospel that brought you into a sincere faith. So that must be a central part. But look at, it, it's something else that, that's very important in verse number five. Don't just look at the fact that Paul, that Timothy had a sincere faith. Look at where his faith came from. Look at verse number five. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice. In other words, what Paul is showing us here is that discipleship for Timothy did not start with Paul. Discipleship with Timothy started with Timothy at home with grandma and mom. That's where the, and if you're a parent in this room and you have children, your first place of discipleship is at home. Don't get it twisted. My, my wife had to remind me of this recently. She looked on my calendar. She shares my calendar on her phone and she was looking through my calendar. She saw discipleship lunch and discipleship this and discipleship that. And she looked and she came to me so lovingly. I had an attitude, but it's okay. She looked at me so lovingly and said, I didn't see your boys on that calendar. What I noticed in that moment was that I was thinking discipleship outside of the house. I wasn't doing what Mama Eunice and Grandma Lois did. At home, discipleship starts. And that's what Paul is showing us here. Paul is saying, listen, I want to remind you that the sincere faith you have wasn't birthed with time with me. No, it was birthed at time with home. And let me affirm you mothers in this room through the scriptures especially you single mothers, do not underestimate the spiritual role that you have in your child's life. Do not underestimate. I was having coffee with a young man earlier this week that goes here and 
He was telling me how his grandmother invested into his life in such a way that she was a big part of his spiritual formation. Listen, Timothy is an elder at the Ephesus church and it was birthed through time at home with two different generations pouring the gospel into him. And he just pour good doctrine into him. No, it, the foundation of the gospel. How do I know? Because Paul says later in this letter, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, he says this to Timothy. He says, from your childhood, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which is able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. This thing started for Timothy at home. And so what Paul is doing is Paul is building on what was already happening at home. Paul didn't share the gospel with Timothy and he gave his life to the Lord. No, grandma and mom at home was pouring into him. Do not underestimate your role. Mothers in here, do not, you have a strategic role in your child's life. And here's the thing. Notice that Timothy's father isn't mentioned. Not mentioned at all. Mom and grandma is mentioned. The father's not mentioned because he is an unbelieving Gentile. And so whether you have a husband or a wife that doesn't know Jesus, that doesn't give you the responsibility to check out on your kids. You know, you got to disciple them because whether Paul's father was in the picture or not spiritually, grandma and mom was, and they poured into Timothy to a point where he became a prominent figure in the Ephesus church and Paul just builds on it. And so I can't, I can't say how important discipleship is at home. Do not say, hey, I'm discipling this person and this person and you ain't discipling at home. First of all, you say that to me, I'm going to be like, okay, so how are you discipling your kids? No matter what age they are, what are you doing in the discipleship process with your kids? I don't, I, it does not impress me that you are discipling 10, 15 young men or young women. What impresses me is when you're doing that at home. Grandma and mom was a big part of that. Let's finish this thing up. Verse number five, let me read it again. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that first dwelt in Grandma Lois and Mama Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you. Verse number six, for this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. I really don't have time to deal with the fact that Paul here shows us the importance of the church here as well. Remember, he, talk, he, he began tell, giving this his, his apostleship. And then verse number six, he's saying, listen, this gift of yours is stirred up through the laying on of the one that discipled him, the apostle Paul. It is stirred up through the laying on of Paul's hands. Paul, Paul has spent the last several verses here telling us to remember. Right? Verse 3, verse 4, and verse 5, he's telling us to remember how he remembers. And now in verse number 6, finally he calls and challenges Timothy, his disciple, to remember. What does he tell him to remember? He says, he said, for this, this reason, I remind you, I'm telling you to remember, to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. It's important for us, because what we see here is that Paul is inspiring Timothy to go after his God-given gifts. And if you, that's really discipleship. Discipleship doesn't just walk you through good doctrine and character issues, but it also tries to pull out the very gift of God in you. 
You need to sit across from somebody and say, man, tell me where you're gifted. And don't sit in here and tell me you're not gifted. James 1, all of us are gifted. All of our gifts come from above and they come down from the Father. And so I don't know who you are in here or where you are or how you are wired. The truth of the matter is all of us must be in two discipleship relationships. We should be being discipled and we should be discipling. All of us in here. There are young men that come in here, young women that are immature in the faith. And if you have a little maturity, you should say, I'm going to take that person under my wing. We're so consumeristic. We just want discipleship, but we don't want to pour it into somebody else. So what are the practical steps you can take as we close our time? Practical steps you can take in seeking discipleship. Pray. If you're not in any discipleship relationship, pray that God would send somebody that can disciple you. Starts with prayer. Don't force it. Don't leave here and say, this in the sermon just encouraged me to ask you. No, take, slow down. Pray. As I said, you're giving this person spiritual authority over your life. You should be praying about that. Watch and be patient. Let me say that again. Watch and be patient. Don't just pick somebody because they come to church every week. You need, to pick, you need to watch their life. Are they mimicable? Remember I said in, that Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Can, is there enough in that person that you can imitate them? You should watch and you should pray. Don't force it. If you don't have an individual relationship, submit to corporate discipleship. It's the first discipleship, well, second after home. Submit to corporate discipleship. Again, you're being discipled through the scriptures right now. So submit to that and seek out counsel and see if you should be somebody that, that disciples. In that video as well, one of the other things that Dr. Mason said that I th thought was important was that the church should be able to affirm that you are able to disciple others. So many people have ambition and it's a good thing, but is there enough in you for somebody else to follow? And if there's not, take time to be discipled. And then at some point, you should disciple. Every head bowed and every eye closed. One of the things that I know is important about the health of our church is not just community. But one of the things that is very important for the health of our church is that we are making disciples. Remember, the Great Commission isn't a, isn't a suggestion for us. It is a command to the church. And the command that Jesus gives to the church is go out and make disciples. And I pray that we would see people, we would share the gospel with people so that they can be converted to know Jesus Christ. Their hearts can be changed and regenerated. And then after that happens, we don't leave them to do this thing on their own. No, then after you see them saved, and trust Jesus, you then have a responsibility to walk with that person. But you also have a responsibility to be walked with. All of us in this room need discipleship. All of us, none of us in this room should go through life and say, I figured this thing out. None of us are sitting at the cross chilling. None of us, but all of us are in a body, a community of people gathered around Jesus Christ. Let's pray. And, and my prayer today is for somebody that has nobody to disciple them. Somebody that is not discipling. And my prayer is for somebody 
that desires it, that knows they need it. Let's pray. Father, today we come to you realizing our need, but we come to you seeking wisdom and discernment and praying and pleading for spiritual growth. Father, you never saved us so that we could remain the same, but you saved us so that we could grow to look more and more like Jesus Christ. Would you remind us of that today? Paul sitting in jail he should not have been concerned with Timothy. Most of, this in, most of us in this room, if we wrote this book, we wouldn't be thinking about somebody else. Most of us. But help us consider the fact that the ones that we invest in, we should be concerned about them. May we have an altruistic spirit, a spirit that is more concerned about somebody else's spiritual growth as well as ours. Help us not to be selfish and consumeristic and think that my walk is only with me and God, nobody else. No, we need people in our business. We need people to challenge us, to correct us, and to encourage us. And Father, this morning, would you do that? Would you show us our need and help us to respond by praying and by watching? And would you send people into our lives that can sharpen us and challenge us we often think that what we're doing is often right, but sometimes we need somebody to come alongside of us. May there be more Grandma Lois's and, and Mother Eunice. May there be more of that in this church. That we're so concerned about those in our household that we're discipling them. And then there, may there be more Pauls in the church. Selfless Paul that desires to pour not just into Timothy, but so many others, Titus and Epaphroditus and the church at Rome and the church at Ephesus and the church at Corinth and the church at Thessalonica, so many others, Paul, the church at Colossia, even though he didn't even plant that church, he was concerned about it. Lord, I pray that you would give us that heart today. It's in Christ's name that we come before you.